Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Santosh here, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Joining us once again, special guest and friend of the show, as well as host of podcast Space 3D. Welcome to Eleanor. Well, hello everyone. Hey. I asked Eleanor to join us specifically because we are continuing our supervillain series. <laughs> all, all right. And Reel it in. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't even around for the first one. No, no, because I knew I'd have to put up with this. If I get my hands on you. <laughs> so, in the supervillain series, it basically got started because I was watching a James Bond movie marathon and wondering how likely the injuries depicted in those films, either on James Bond or the villains he fights, would really happen. And this week I was watching the 11th Bond film, the fourth Roger Moore film, the movie <laughs> Moonraker. Uh, the one with the giant laser? Uh, we no, were no, just subjected to a few clips. <laughs> well, yes. Sadly, I have I have not seen the whole movie, but I... Did see a relevant clip uh, fairly recently. <laughs> Good reminder of how wacky these movies are. <laughs> but I was impressed with uh, all the all the soldiers coming out of the mid the uh, mid deck of the shuttle and all the MMU units. Yeah, following the lead of the Star Wars movies, they decided they'd one up the ship dogfights in space. By having a zero-G infantry unit. (laughs) Was this in the heyday of Star Wars? Yeah, this movie came out in 1979. So right smack dab in the middle of the Star Wars era. 
Yeah. And so this is when, ev- like, everyone wanted to do Star Wars, but not Star Wars. All right. Thanks, uh, Dr. Ward, for stepping in from the airlock. You brought in a perfect opportunity because we were just talking about the death of Drax in Moonraker, the Bond villain. And right before Bond throws him out an airlock into space, he delivers what is probably one of my favorite Bond's death lines, which is, here you go, take a giant step for mankind. And then just puts him in the airlock, throws him out the door after having hit him with essentially a wrist blow dart. It's amazing. Dude, a Brit stole like, uh, like an American's, like one of his greatest lines in real life. That's not fair. A British hero paid homage <laughs> to an American icon. <laughs> it's the most sincere oh, form of flattery. I, and I would say ironic that you know you're bringing this up now, given that this year's the 50th anniversary of the first oh, yeah. landing. This week we're going to talk about how reliable would it be if somebody was thrown into space, we already showed in last week's episode that drowning in a nuclear pool in a bond film versus the real world doesn't quite measure up. So let's see how realistic the injuries suffered in the vacuum of Hollywood space and real space are. So Eleanor, you are a resident space expert. Let's start with uh, the spacesuit itself. So Drax was thrown out into an airlock, out of the airlock, into space without a. What's going to happen to him? Some fairly dramatic things pretty quickly. He's he's basically going to become oh, the equivalent of freeze-dried coffee very quickly. He's going to become delicious and <laughs> he'll be he'll be like Folger crystallized crystallized coffee. <laughs> if you're exposed to it, you would undergo rapid depressurization. I mean, basically, all the air gets sucked out of your lungs. Your blood begins to boil, and, and quite frankly, you're going to freeze dry. How how quickly is fairly quickly? Are we talking like seconds yeah. or minutes? I think within a minute or two at the most. It's a pretty rapid. Oh, boy. My understanding is it's pretty rapid. So I took some time to actually look up a couple of these numbers because I just have a morbid fascination. Not with any one thing in particular, just morbid fascination. <laughs> That's I, I think I could, like if I had to describe you in two words, it would be morbid fascination. <laughs> <laughs> so what does that thin layer of spacesuit actually do for our astronauts? Well, it's a pressurized, oxygenated atmosphere meant to protect them from UV radiation and extreme extreme temperatures uh, in the negative 200 degrees Fahrenheit range. So it gets almost as cold as Chicago. Aha! But it also can protect them. <laughs> That's a burn on you, Chicago. It should also be able to protect them from basically swings in temperature. So if they're in full sunlight, they're going to be exposed to, you know, positive 200, I think, or more. And they also have, I believe, micrometeoroid shield in there. Oh, as well. so that's right, because the last thing you want is a bug on the shield. That's right. I mean, there's multiple layers to these to the suits, and yeah, I, I mean, imagine them basically their own, their own little self-contained atmosphere for the human. Now, in I think one of the greatest descriptions of a terrible thing ever, after about ten seconds without a suit, all the things Eleanor was describing have a name like that entire concept of dying in space can be summed up by one word that wasn't even created for space travel (laughs) and that's ebulism and during ebulism ebulism 
and that is when a reduction below atmospheric pressure causes the water in your body to instantly vaporize or boil, which as a result causes your skin and soft tissues to expand. So you actually start to balloon up like in total recall, but you don't actually pop because human skin is pretty strong due to all the fibroelastic tissue in it. And therefore you can be contained, but the burst blood vessels result in real technical term space hickeys. Oh, God. <laughs> Oh, you know what? That makes sense. So, in one atmospheric, at one atmospheric pressure, I'm I'm guessing this. I'm taking this from undersea medicine. One atmosphere of pressure is about twenty nine point okay. four pounds square inch psi. I guess that's not enough to pop your skin. That's that's twenty nine point four. No, no, but that's. I guess what, that's half that's of an inflated bicycle tire. <laughs> like right, that's what we. That's what we live in. So all of yeah, a sudden, that's what we want. We're that's like we're at equilibrium with that, right? So now you have negative twenty nine point four point yeah, four yeah. pounds so, square inch psi <laughs> well, pushing I mean, outwards. So that's lung pressure. You know, that's gonna so that's your, everything your lungs pressure. are gonna collapse as the air goes out of there, uh, and then the lo- the lower the pressure, much. the lower the boiling point of a. Yeah, I mean, you're you're basically you're gonna boil off your blood, and and the air immediately comes out of your lungs, and and you dehydrate. Oh it's not a good way to go. <laughs> now, remember, this is just the first ten seconds in space without any sort of protective. Let's go back to that uh, stopwatch and see what happens afterwards. Okay. Within fifteen seconds. Well, are you not curious? Well, no, I mean, it's, I don't know how much it could get much worse. All right, fine. That's it, guys. Yeah. Thanks Thanks for coming. It's been a good episode. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just trying to figure out where we go from here. I mean, we've already, like, exploded our organs uh, internally from boiling and dehydrated our skin. and lots No, 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 no. You've just vaporized the water. It's It's why you're prone to very easy bruising at high altitudes like Everest. Style. I mean, you know, the lower the atmosphere, the more prone you are to have uh, edema and easy bruising and things like that. Yeah. So after 15 seconds, um, so you'd be totally conscious and aware of yourself swelling up like a human. Oh boy. But after 15 seconds, your body uses up its reserve oxygen. And that's assuming, you know, you don't hold your breath. But after 15 seconds, your body uses up its reserve oxygen, and then you pass out and asphyxiate from the lack of breathable air. So you're not really aware of yourself freeze drying <laughs> for the most part. Thank God. Because you're unconscious after 15 seconds. Now, okay. again, that's if you don't, if you don't hold your breath, meaning you exhale and, you know, breathe normally as you go into this vacuum, you can survive potentially as long as two minutes. Real exciting. <laughs> but if you inhale before exiting, which is what Drax does in the Bond film, the vacuum that you create, because the whole reason your lungs inflate when you breathe is you're creating a negative pressure with respect to the outside environment. That draws air into your lungs. Right, right. So, so you expand your lung volume and, you know, this is you know, volume pressure equation. So increase in volume means decrease in pressure. For that period of time, air rushes in. But that's because there's a pressure difference. Right, exactly, exactly. So in space, that pressure difference is reversed, meaning there is no pressure in space and there is, however small, pressure in your lungs. So if you inhale before exiting, you create that gradient 
Then thus, the vacuum in space would cause the oxygen in your lungs to expand, as we noted, and then you would rupture lung tissues, forcing fatal air bubbles into blood vessels. So you could actually explode your lungs while boiling your blood. That's exactly what happens when you, uh, when scuba divers ah. all of a sudden ascend two or three atmospheres up. You create a air embolus because the air bubbles, the lungs, well, don't they don't literally blow, blow up inside you, but the little alveoli pop, and they dissect into the capillaries and uh, pulmonary uh, arteries and, and pulmonary so veins, bends, and that's right? how you get these air bubbles get sent up. That's not the bends. The bends is actually the micro 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 oh. bubbles settling out from the pressure difference when you descend too quickly, but the the direct physical air getting into the blood vessels, that's an air embolism. And that's what happens when Drax gets pushed out if he held his Aww. breath. And to unfortunate scuba divers. So the question is, how do we know all this, right? I mean, certainly some science fiction writers came up with certain things like uh, the eyeballs popping, but they had to get that idea from somewhere. So a lot of it, as Ward's already mentioned, comes from deep sea medicine because there is a lot of similarities between deep space and deep sea. And many of the astronauts, I believe, were trained using uh, undersea training, if I, if I recall my astronaut camp correctly from sixth grade. Well, you know, I, th I believe that the, they are all exposed to uh, pressure chamber, altitude chamber tests to understand, just like pilots to understand, you know, what happens to their mental faculties with hypoxia. In terms of risk of ebulism, you know, I'm actually not sure what, if they receive any particular training. You know, any knowledge that I think we have of, of that condition comes from, like, the, you know, the famous story of the suit technician that was in a vacuum chamber exposed, you know, to the equivalent of, I think, 100,000 feet altitude and, you know, felt, yeah, felt saliva boiling off his, off his tongue. And he, he survived that. Joe Kittinger, the you know, one of the Air Force guys, the pre-astronauts that did high altitude balloon dives. Um, I believe he had a problem with one of his gloves and his one of his uh, hands swelled to like twice normal size when he, you know, was at that extreme altitude. It returned to normal as he got into lower altitudes. And I want to say there might have actually been one event maybe during the shuttle program, maybe during an EVA, some uh, shuttle pilot or a shuttle astronaut may have had a similar type of issue. The suit technician's name uh, was Jim LeBlanc. And I guess he's, he sprung a leak in the suit is what you said? Uh, I think he lost suit pressure. I don't remember enough about the story to know was that, you know, he popped a leak or or what? I mean, I don't know if the suit was hooked up to something in the hose, you know, sprang a leak. I, I don't know this, enough of the details. All I remember, of course, like you, are the morbid, fascinating details and the whole famous story of him feeling before he passed out from hypoxia, he felt like saliva starting to boil on his tongue. That is insane. <laughs> if they want a cautionary tale, I can just take them deep sea fishing, honestly. Like, if the astronauts want to see what happens, I have you, have you all ever seen pictures of um, deep sea fish that get hauled up. They don't even have to be that deep because understandably 34 feet is about one atmosphere. So even if you go, go out like, I don't know, two, 300 feet, that's like, oh, wow. oh boy, that's like eight atmospheres, 10 atmospheres. 
And you see these, yeah, uh, you see these deep water fish that that have swim bladders. Some some of them get hauled up, and immediately their eyes pop out, uh, and their swim yeah. bladders explode, and uh, their tongues so are hanging out. I, I was thinking actually a little yeah. bit more of there were a few of these videos online actually showing what happened to people when they were in simulated flight, and then the pressure went out, so they decreased the parts or, or sorry they decreased the atmospheric pressure in the room which was made to simulate you know when the pressure drops when you're flying at 30,000 feet yeah and i remember seeing this really bizarre you know confused look on people's faces um destined from smarter every day did this where he knew that he had to put his oxygen mask on in order to just kind of maintain cognition but he got kind of drunk and funny. Yeah, yeah. And so he was being told. He was, you know, someone was saying to him, hey, you have to put your mask on. You don't want to die, do you? And he kind of looked hazily at them and said, well, I suppose I don't want to die. And, you know, he didn't make any move or anything because that first time around he was asked, not to put the mask on to just see what happened to him it's also like in seconds and so i can imagine if you're exposed to the, like the cold of space and all of a sudden you get oxygen deprivation to the brain even before you're passed out uh, you know you you do have that that loss of cognition because you're you go into brain failure. Eleanor, wasn't there a, a fire and depressurization on the Mir space station? There was. Um, you know, back when the U.S. was sending uh, astronauts up there to gain long-term spaceflight exposure, um, there were actually two pretty scary events. One was um, a collision of a Progress cargo vehicle with the space station that occurred. And as I recall, I think I want to say it was, was it Jerry Leninger that I think was on that flight. And he said that all of a sudden when this occurred, the first, I think before like the alarm started going off, the thing he felt was like his ears popping. So it wasn't like an instantaneous, you know, like that, that all the air evacuated in the mere space station. What he, what he felt in terms of a drop in, in air pressure was his ears popping. Oh, yeah. Okay. And they were able to, if I recall, they were able to Ooh. close off the portion of the, of the station that um, where they had the, the collision that it, that it occurred. So they were able to isolate it. And then um, they never were able to use that portion of the station again. Oh, wow. And it was like such a quick thing. Like they had to, they were like cutting all these cords and everything just to like be able to close the hatch because I guess. The, initially, they couldn't close the hatch because there were so many wires and and all sorts of things that were obstructing the the closure. So uh, I, that's what I recall when about that episode. Um, there also, yes, there was a fire as well. As I recall, what happened in that case was I think they wanted to generate more oxygen, and they were using these lithium hydroxide canisters, and there was some. Some malfunction with that that basically uh, it started. Samsung battery. On, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> and they, yeah, I mean, they, it's it started a fire. And as I also recall, you know, flame propagation in microgravity is different than on Earth. The my memories of the specifics 
of the fire on Mir and the, all the details and how that was controlled. I, I don't remember all the details and I apologize, but, but yes, I mean, they, that was clearly, that's one of the most fright. I mean, think about it. You're in a closed space. You've, you can't exit that vehicle. Um, and, you know, having acute depressurization of that or having a fire. I mean, these are horrific, horrific emergencies. And yeah, they've, they have occurred in space and, and we've actually survived them. Well, it's interesting you say that the first hint of uh, depressurization was that the ears were popping. When we think of dying of no oxygen, yes. we think of this, yeah. oh my gosh, I can't breathe. I want to breathe, but I can't breathe that sensation. Well, most of that sensation in human beings, when you hold your breath and that awful feeling comes from the buildup of CO2 and your blood becomes more acidic. In fact, just the lack of oxygen itself doesn't really create that air drive. So that's why in airplanes, sometimes you, we, the Wes Santosh talked about, you just feel this weird, foggy, I can't think type of situation. Euphoria almost, exactly. And when, or when, when you dive, that oxygen mix isn't right. You don't really know it because you're, because you're still exchanging CO2 and you don't have that awful air thirst, that air hunger before you know it, you just pass out. That's also, by the way, why sometimes these people oh, who put a bag over their heads and do the, you know, uh, erotica, sometimes they don't, yeah, sometimes they don't know it because the well, CO2 doesn't build up. Where but, I use the correct term, it's autoerotic asphyxiation. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? I was trying to maybe hold yes. back the tide a little bit so someone wouldn't Google something and be horrified. We're not going to auto-erotic asphyxiate shame anyone here. We're just talking science. How rapid decompression and, and having the ears pop and so forth. You know, a corollary to that is, you know, like the, the event that happened last year, you know, with the acute depressurization of that Southwest flight, you know, with the fan blade hitting the hitting the window. Um, mm -hmm. And oh, yeah. I know that I have actually heard, uh, and, and every time I, I'm on a plane now and they do the safety briefing, I always chuckle to myself in an evil way when they talk about, you know, in, in the event of a, an emergency and oxygen masks will drop down from the ceiling. You know, the reality is uh, if you have acute depressurization, you have literally seconds before you start feeling that you start experiencing acute hypoxia. So, you know, I often wonder what's the reality of how quickly they can get these masks on. You know, they always say, put the mask on, put the mask on the child first, you know, and then the adult. It's like, well, yeah. Then the, oh, no, no. On, no, on no, no. They tell you, oh, screw they, the kids. Oh, put, put it on, on yourself. Person. Okay. Um, yeah, but yeah. I just wonder about all the timing of that. And of course, I know things with that Southwest event, they had cell phone, you know, cell phone film of some of the people obviously not putting the mask on correctly as well either. Um, sure. But, uh, but also just one other, one other tidbit to that. Uh, if you recall, they had a fairly rapid descent in the aircraft and that was done purposefully by the pilot so that they could get to a lower altitude. So they wouldn't have to necessarily use those masks because, yeah. you know, for that very reason. Um no, that was really sharp thinking on, on behalf of that pilot. And I know that's what they're trained to do in an emergency. But like this, this all makes so much sense of what we know with dive physiology and then what happens at altitude. And then all you have to do is just crank that dial up to 11 
And, you know, this is what like decompression is like. Mm -hmm. If you're in an environment like a space station and you get kicked out into space without a suit. So it's, it's all the same physiology. It's just extreme. Right. You know, I was doing that hike up in the Himalayas for uh, mission. It was, that one was gradual, but you know, a lot of the same, you got ears popping and you realized you got thirsty a lot quicker than you should. Um, And that was without, you know, thinking about like the air being thin and and altitude sickness. Altitude sickness is about 10 minutes of feeling drunk, followed by days of feeling hungover. (laughs) Well put. We've talked about depressurization. We've talked about fluid shifts. We've talked about asphyxiation, sexual or otherwise. We've talked about a fire. Thank goodness. (laughs) Thank goodness you at least can't drown in space. Oh, well, that may not be true. What? (laughs) (laughs) that was a good setup i like that uh, that's good that was that was pretty good um no actually there there was an instance where um on the space station where a um italian astronaut uh almost drowned in his spacesuit uh a gentleman by the name of luca parmitano in 2013 there was a malfunction in his um in the the uh I guess it was the drinking water apparatus in his helmet and it started leaking and he wasn't able to stop it. It started filling up his, filling up the helmet. And he actually was almost at the point where he was going to be, his, his nostrils were going to be submerged. And uh, fortunately he was able to get back into the, into the uh, space station so they could get his helmet off. But it was a pretty frightening scenario. Could he have just I drank feel like that's water? a valid question. And I, I don't want to shame. I don't want to shame Lord over here, but I, I was like thinking the same thing. Uh, I mean, <laughs> what? Just sipped it and drank it? What? I'm like, I, I would just drank that water, but yeah, I, I'm guessing I, that's probably too know, much water I, from the drink I in one sitting. I'm just saying. I don't remember. I know I would, he was yeah. like the first Italian to take a um, spacewalk too, um, but it was the second spacewalk when he uh, when that helmets started filling with water you know in those flight suits um one of the other layers that they actually wear in these suits is uh kind of kind of a cool thing it's it's like long johns that have tubes embedded in them and they can run cool water through these tubes to to help uh maintain temperature and and reduce from overheating in those flight suits um so that This is perfect because we talked about those are the same kind of pants that nuclear divers wear that we talked about last week. And I think they've been used on Earth, actually, as like a spinoff for uh, there's some sort of condition where certain children, like they can't they can't uh, dissipate heat or something. There's some sort of rare condition. Yeah, I believe it's called uh, Liar Liar (laughs) Pants on Fire. That's right. That's it. And now at last it can That's be a common condition, Josh. With these uh, <laughs> trouser tubes. Oh, you know what? I have seen similar apparatus in our ICUs and emergency departments. We There's a brand name for it. We call it the Arctic Sun. But it's uh, for hypothermia protocols when we paralyze a patient and want to drop their core temperature down to, you know, like three, four degrees below uh, our normal temperature. We have these pads that run cold water through it's a mini radiator reverse radiator you run the cold water through a pad and there are little coils and then the other end it comes back the warm water comes back 
the excess temperature away. So yeah, this is yeah. this is when you're doing like a cooling protocol. Body heat away. It's like that's the closest we can get in current world technology. Even though there are existing cryo labs, they are very <laughs> expensive scams. There's Disney one exception scams. to that. Um, there <laughs> is the other, more commonly known one, is you can um, for fertility yeah. treatments, so, people freeze their eggs. So one of the things we talk about with with they, human yeah. space travel over the long term would be. How do we survive, you know, if we do go Star Trek, seek out new life, new civilizations on our mission? And there's that's where cryogenics comes up because of relativistic time. And I always thought that always made me think of the movie Demolition Man um, <laughs> with, with liquid nitrogen. Well, he commits a crime and then they stick him in a thing and freeze him and wake him up, you know, and it's 30 years later to fight Dennis Theory. <laughs> Well, uh, Wesley no, no, no. He fought Wesley Snipes. Dennis Leary was incidental. But in both space movies as well as in a lot of action movies, they love talking about liquid nitrogen and its fun and deadly applications. So what actually would happen if, say, like in the movie Goldeneye, you got liquid nitrogen dumped on you or if you did, like in Demolition Man, fall into liquid nitrogen? Most of us, I'm sure, are picturing instantly turning into a ice sculpture exactly. and shattering on the floor. Yeah, right? like, like there's roses they'll put in the liquid nitrogen and then shatter them. Yeah. So if you fell into liquid nitrogen, there is actually something called the Leidenfrost effect that would protect you for some time. And by some time, I mean a few seconds. You have a very <laughs> small window when you fall in to escape or be rescued and we're looking about three to five seconds after that you start to suffer painful frostbite on every part (laughs) of your body after about half a minute you're unconscious and hypothermic after a minute you're dead or at least fatally damaged after an (laughs) hour you're you know, kiss from a rose on a grave, shatterproof. <laughs> um, yeah, the the Leiden frost effect for those of you, you everybody's seen this in ri- real life. Um, you have your uh, your hot pan, like your griddle, and you toss some water on there, and the water instead of just poofing off because of the heat, the little droplets actually dance across the plate and stay whole, and that's because there's this teeny little bit of water vapor. That's still, you know, encircling that droplet of water. And until that boils off completely, the water in the center of that little moisture bubble actually stays cohesive and doesn't boil off, but instead dances across the hot surface. So, unfortunately, stasis chambers probably still aren't part of our long-term space travel. And that brings us back to... Eleanor, what's going to happen to humans who are up in space for a prolonged period of time? Because there's been issues that they've studied with astronauts, most, I think, famously with the twin (laughs) studies and the poor uh, guy who had to sit at home while his brother got to have all the space. (laughs) I mean, imagine once your body is out of the cocoon of the 1G environment on Earth, um, every cellular system is impacted by exposure to so-called microgravity or reduced gravity. Um, and some of the more serious things that occur uh, would include, first of all, the longer you're in space, you begin to lose bone mass, particularly in your weight-bearing uh, joints or weight-bearing bones. And, you know, I've always envisioned that if there isn't some way of preserving that, um, on long duration flights, let's say to Mars, 
you know, I can envision the first people taking their steps on the red planet may step down, twist their ankle, fall and break their femur. And then, you know, have no way of having a, a way to really repair that while they're on the, on the surface. And right now, um, the double-edged sword right now is that there are, there is a type of exercise machine that's been used, um, that ha- is mass bearing exercise that can basically arrest any of the, the bone loss that occurs, but at the expense of, uh, possibly exacerbating another problem, uh, with long duration space flight. And that's, uh, changes in, um, in visual acuity and people using this exercise may actually have more of a uh, incidence of this, of this effect. Essentially, the longer you're in space, um, the worse your visual acuity can become. And in fact, I've actually been told by someone who recently retired from the space program as a scientist that on the space station, for example, there's a whole collection of eyeglasses up there that people interchangeably will... I thought you were going to say <laughs> No, no, there are a whole bunch of eyeglasses sure up there. Excited that, or disappointed. You know, as visual acuity changes, they're switching out these glasses. Um, no, they're not exactly sure what exactly is going on. The predominant theory is that as you get headward fluid shifts with when you're in the weightless, you know, atmosphere, when you're in the weightless environment of space, that that may be putting more hydrostatic pressure and pressure on the optic nerve. Um, and maybe that's what's causing this problem. There are others that, that claim that's not necessarily the case. There, there's some other data suggesting that perhaps uh, there's an increase in cerebral spinal fluid production, and that's also doing something to put pressure into the, into that, on the retinal, on the retinal nerve or the optic nerve. Uh, over time, the eyeball in the back of the eye basically can become flattened, presumably due to some forward pressure pressing on the on the back of the eyeball and the optic nerve itself can become somewhat compressed what's funny you mentioned the csf production sometimes we have there are conditions where there is um our optic nerves can be affected by too much csf and um, inadequate reabsorption that can actually cause headaches and visual Um, changes upon return to earth they may not completely return to normal in terms of their visual acuity. So what I'm hearing is that uh, if the Chinese are planning to build a villainous super base on the dark side of the moon, they're going to have a real hard time recruiting henchmen. Or at the very well, least, you know, keep in mind though, on the moon, you still have one sixth of Earth gravity. So maybe one sixth of gravity, if you're if you're living on the on the surface, uh, maybe that'll be enough to prevent any of these issues. Remember, it's microgravity long duration weightlessness that that appears to be the risk factor. You know, the other scary thing is that um, your immune system becomes uh, altered in space. Actually, there's impaired um, cell-mediated immunity. Uh, Apparently, you know, cuts and things take a little bit longer to heal. Um, And uh, the other, along with that, you can get viral reactivation of like, you know, HPV, for example. You know, they've they've actually looked at reactivation of HPV uh, in in the uh, astronaut's saliva and find that the number of copies of the of this actually goes up with exposure to, <laughs> to microgravity. Organisms actually can demonstrate greater virulence uh, in microgravity. Uh, and they've looked at this with both gram positive and gram negative uh 
organisms. Space uh, herpes I, could become a, kidla- a killer as well. <laughs> Watching the Jetsons way back when, which, you know, they tried to portray life as regular life, but they just put space in front of everything. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I caught space herpes. And Judy was all excited over that rock singer who was singing the E or R ear. That was the space herpes episode. Oh, stop it. I'm reading this article from NASA, and it says even your genes, the way your, your genes are expressed and your the, the very DNA itself looks different after you've been up on space in a while. And uh, according to a preliminary study, when Mark and Scott Kelly were identical, identical twins, one of the brothers went up to space. They found that the space brother, uh, I don't know which one it was, Mark or Scott, his telomeres right. were yeah. longer while he was, was in space. Of, uh, and I think there was a lot of misinterpretation of that in the press where they were saying, oh, my God, you know, he prematurely aged in space and he's genetically mutated in space. And Did you say genetically mutated? No, 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 no. You're not turning into Wolverine or Cyclops by just going into space. God damn you. An extreme dose of gamma radiation. Oh, you wouldn't like Santosh when he's angry. Listen, if we talk about the effects of radiation like leukemia... I'm totally okay with it, okay? But we're not, I'm not allowing anybody to enable Dr. Josh on this episode or any of them to think that he's going to turn into friggin' Magneto. Okay, yeah. to be fair, I'm yeah, looking at the picture absolutely. of uh, the, the the twins, the Kelly twins. One of the brothers, I'm presuming <laughs> the one who went to space, does look a lot like Charles Xavier. For those of you playing along, I find a new way to torture Dr. Santosh every year. Going all the way back to Taylor Swift. (laughs) And this year, it's X-Men. So, uh, keep on watching and see how many mutants can make it. A, this is supposed to be an educational program, so I worry about our listeners, some of whom may be impressionable. B, I'm genuinely worried that the host and editor of this program (laughs) is going to try to ingest toxic waste because he thinks... (laughs) <laughs> that he's going to turn into the juggernaut. Number one, no, you're not. You're going to turn into like Deadpool, but before <laughs> he learned how to heal, just like straight tumors. <laughs> okay. And number two, if you do turn into an X Man, I guarantee you're going to be the male version of Jubilee. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There. That'll shut Sick you up for five bird. minutes. Fine. So, if what happens if you do die in space from any one of these things, and they just toss your body out the airlock like the buzzkill? That well, you, you are. probably would. You probably would want to preserve the body, though, well, so that you could examine it if you bring it back to Earth. So, you know, I would say, if in the absence of having a body bag up there, just put them in one of those EVA suits and stick them in the uh, stick them in the airlock to keep them frozen. Yeah, it's like the uh, oh, nice. it's like the freezer because. Your body will not decompose in the normal way since there is no oxygen and very limited bacteria available to break you down since most of the bacteria that are responsible for decomposition require oxygen. If you were near a source of heat, your body would mummify. If not, it would freeze. And in a spacesuit, it would decompose, but only for as long as the oxygen lasted. Whatever the condition, though, your body would last for potentially millions of years just 
drifting along. There are plenty of anaerobic bacteria, and those are like gas gangrenes, you know, fermenters that will go to work on, you know, the extra nutrients in your intestine and probably still blow your insides up as long as there's a little bit of heat because they don't need uh, Mm. oxygen in order to replicate. Eleanor, would you still get like the puffy abdomen from... You know the the gut the oh, I, I uh, don't know. microbes in your because gut because I don't think we've ever down. had a dead person up there to test that hypothesis. The the way that we lose heat heat right. here on Earth, right? Conduction, convection, these kind of things. But uh, you don't have any air to actually carry heat away from your body very quickly. So you know, even though your your core temperature won't drop as quickly <laughs> as like if you go no, out but, in the middle yeah, of that's a Chicago a good point. I don't know about heat conduction. I, you know, it, so, the thing that immediately comes to mind in terms of, of that being an issue is that <clears throat> I know that there is concern about, I believe buildup of CO2, like in the little crew compartments where they sleep. And I think they use fans to keep air circulating around an individual when they're sleeping to prevent, excess buildup of CO2 that that I think that that's something but in terms of heat dissipation I don't not really sure because again we've never tested the hypothesis of how how a human body would break down if they were dead in space the anaerobes in the gut like bacillus uh, bacterioides and clostridia would just go to town and you'd get that same like liquefaction of your guts with the swollen abdomen and everything just like you do here on earth so (laughs) that's it for this week as always we love to hear your comments questions and feedback if you'd like to support the show spiritually emotionally financially links to do that are in the show notes along with any sources we use this week spoiler the source was moonraker and eleanor so no sources our theme music is composed by rachel leisure and until next time as always Happy travels. Bye. Woohoo. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.